According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in uh, Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. We're in uh, verses 7 through 11 or 7 through 12. I keep going back and forth in my mind. I can't make up my mind where I want to put verse 12 either at the end of 7 through 12 or at the beginning of, of 12 through 16. Um, anyway, we've got a few more classes to figure it out. I think what I'm going to end up doing is putting it in with 13 through 16 and uh, stopping our current outline with verse 11. So uh, we'll just let it go at that. Uh, before we get started tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to, uh, to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight and the blessing we have to assemble together. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father. Day after day, moment by moment, Father, you are eternally faithful from generation to generation. We call upon that faithfulness once again this evening, that you would hedge us about and protect us, open the eyes of our understanding, and bless our study. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Microphone's ready to go. All right, well then uh, we'll give uh, our first question there. I saw Lewis's hand first, so we'll start with Lewis. Thank you. So I have like a few questions. I've been storing them up for weeks. No. Um, oh, that's right. Well, there's no question and answer last week, right? Absolutely, you, you absolutely not, no. Okay. <laughs> I Thank can you. ask questions. I can't deal with them. Right. So the first question that occurred to me this morning when you were talking about, um, I believe it was Psalms, and so the, the uh, whirlwind appeared and the Lord's voice appeared through that whirlwind. Um, are some of those considered uh, Jesus? I mean, do we ever know definitively which of the Trinity that was? As far as the, uh, the still small voice we're talking about? or the That or the voice through this whirlwind that we talked about this morning? Oh, in the book Job, of Job, yeah. right. Thank you. Yeah, typically, uh, most theophanies, uh, theophany is an appearance of God, most theophanies are technically identified as Christophanies, that they are Jesus, they are God the Son. If, if you're going to put a, a Father, Son, or Holy Spirit label on it, most theophanies are the Son, because He is the manifestation of the invisible Father. He is the Word that goes forth from the Father. And so, generally speaking, whether it's the burning bush or the cloud by day or the pillar of fire, any of those appearances, when God's speaking, that's the word of the Lord. That's the word of God that's going forth. And so they're generally thought of as being God the Son. Okay, second question I had through my reading in uh, the Unseen Realm. Um, when we talk about um, making, or we're, we're be, we've been, we're, uh, Adam was made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. I had thought that it was spirit for some time, but uh, the author has a different appearance. What is your take on, we're made in the image of God, well, what, what image? What, what does that mean? In the image and likeness of God. Yes. Right. And so we, we image God, and, and actually from the Hebrew, it's, it's better understood as a verb than a noun. And so we are made, and God created Adam to image God as a function, as a verbal function. And, uh, and then, so it's not a bad translation to say in the image, because that's what an image would do. If you're imaging God, you are an image. But, um, but that's the, 
that's the case that he makes. And he draws from Hebrew, he draws from, the, the author's name is Michael Heiser, Michael S. Heiser. And uh, his, probably one of his newest books out there is called The Unseen Realm. And, but he does a lot of work in Genesis, Genesis on, on imaging God and what is humanity designed to do and how the woman was designed to help the man in that function of imaging God. And, and everything that he lays out there, he makes a Hebrew case for it. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he's brilliant in Hebrew and Aramaic, also in Ugaritic. Uh, he's probably the best I've seen in Ugaritic in, in, in our lifetime anyway. Um, so, yeah, any, anything I read by him, I, I pay a lot of attention to, but he's not a dispensationalist. So right there, I've got to back up a little bit and, and have a word of caution. And uh, there's a couple other theological differences that we have. And so while I appreciate his Hebrew scholarship and his Aramaic and his Ugaritic, I realize that um, we're going to have differences in theology based upon his rejection of a, of a dispensational understanding. Yeah, the last question, we sort of, I mentioned it to you earlier. He talks about the fact, you know, I mean, I understand the fact that just because he foreknows something doesn't mean he predestined it. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, if, if, if God, if we were looking at a deist situation, that he, it would just go randomly. You wouldn't know how it would turn out. So obviously, God has decrees, but he doesn't really, how, how does that work as far as making things, in some sense, predestined, right? He, he knows how he wants it to end. Okay, I, um, I didn't exactly follow all that, but for, I agree. Foreknowledge is not determinative. The fact that he knows something is going to happen does not make it happen. And so it's not causative. And uh, the, the, the Calvinist view, of course, is everything is caused. Everything is determined. Everything, God makes every sin, sin, and he makes every, uh, every you know, good thing good, and, and he, he causes us to choose everything that we choose. And uh, and with foreknowledge, you don't have to cause us to choose everything that we're going to choose because he knows uh, what we're going to choose before we do it. And so uh, that's that's the better understanding of how foreknowledge works with with predestination or election or, or calling or choosing or any of those things. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Part two is obviously there's a plan, though. Of Jesus, course, there's a plan. Jesus God is works. Oh, back. Ephesians chapter three. He works all things after the counsel of His will. And so he has a plan. It's the eternal life conference from the, before the foundation of the world. Every time you have those statements of before the foundation of the world, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in agreement to this plan. And so that's what it's about. It's the eternal counsel of his will. And that, uh, that centers there on, in Ephesians 3.11, that centers on the, uh, the plan of God and the divine decrees and, and other expressions that people use. Yeah. All right. Bill, you get our next question tonight. I actually have uh, two quick questions. Um, Genesis chapter fifteen, verse nine, uh-huh. um, where he, where he, God tells Abraham to bring some animals to him uh, for the sacrifice. The first three animals he lists there, uh, he states that they had to be three years old. Um, what's the significance, if any, to that age of three years old? I have no idea. All right. So the second question. <laughs> I'm not joking. I mean, I just I, <laughs> I, I, I just know. didn't know if there was a significance to it or not. I mean, but the second. Uh, let me let me make a note. All right. All right. Because uh, uh, clearly, all scripture is God breathed and profitable. And if He said it, then uh, there's a reason why it's there. But it's not something that I've ever been convicted of. Or let me just make a note here on the three-year-old heifer and add a note to the Q&A, and 
What's up with three-year-olds? <laughs> Can they compete in the t- Kentucky Derby if they're a three-year-old? It's only two-year-olds, right, in the Kentucky Derby? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I'll look into that. I, I don't know what the, the, the issue is with three-year-olds. Okay. And the second question is uh, Galatians 3.29. Okay. Uh, where it says that if you are of Christ, you're a descendant of Abraham. Um, I sent this to you in an email a while ago. Um, is this referencing the the Genesis twelve three promise? You had said yes in short, but yes, yeah. Uh, but and I'll say yes again tonight. Yeah, but we are seed of Abraham in the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, and so we're not physical descendants; we're spiritual descendants, as it were. And uh, Galatians addresses that in Galatians three, but also Romans makes that clear in Romans four and five. That, uh, that he is the father of, of all who believe. Uh, and, and the fact that he was saved while uncircumcised, Paul says, is just you know, extra special because that proves that Gentiles are just as savable as Jews because even Abraham was still uncircumcised when he, the righteousness of God was imputed to his account. So, um, yeah, heirs according to the promise uh, that, uh, that is the seed of Abraham. And I think, too, as far as positional truth goes, there's a realm of doctrine we can study with respect to, you know, Paul makes a a big deal between seed plural and seed singular, and that seed singular is Jesus, right? He is the seed of Abraham, seed singular. Well, who are we? We're, We're in Christ. So positionally, we're united with Christ. And so, you know, we don't have to be physical descendants to be heirs of the promise because we are seed of, of Abraham. We are in Christ. And so that's, uh, that's, that's an even greater treasure for us here in the church age. Is there a simple way or a quick way to explain the benefits of being a Jew in the, the, the millennium, tribulation, eternity, future? What's the benefits of being, you know, the chosen being israel a short answer to that yeah is there a short answer to that or well um the advantages to being a jew in the millennium as opposed to well i was just thinking of all the all the the things that the church has Uh well is there any special whatever set aside for the jews in the millennium Say, and what I mean by that is those who haven't crossed over into the church age, like the saints of old. Do they? Ha- is there any special place? Special? Well, I think that I mean clearly, you, you want to be part of the covenant nation in the millennium because uh, you got Gentiles that are volunteering to become slaves just so that they can live in Jerusalem and, and serve Jesus Christ. Uh, they have the land grant. They have all the territory in the promised land and, and that. What we have today where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, that ends at the rapture. So as soon as we're gone out of here, the distinction between Jew and Gentile returns. And in the tribulation and in the millennium, uh, the, the, what, what advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect, Romans 3.1. And so they've got all these advantages. And they, they had them in the Old Testament. They're going to have them again in the in the millennium. And so... Um, tremendous advantage. And of course, in the tribulation, they're going to be the, the global evangelists, 144,000 Jewish evangelists throughout the, throughout the tribulation. So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the, what, what's the advantage? Everything. And, and, uh, so that is, that's the short answer, I guess. The, the, the advantage is everything, uh, as opposed to that. It doesn't mean Gentiles can't get saved, but it means that the Jewish people are on center stage as, as they exercise for the first time ever, really, 
faithfully they exercise their ministry to the to the Gentiles for that thousand year reign. All right, appreciate that. Other questions tonight? I hope I've answered something tonight. It seems like I'm not doing well, but I'm going to mark this other one so that I can make sure I answer this thing about three-year-olds. Yes, ma'am. Very short. In Philippians 3.10, and I know you'll be touching on it tonight, Uh it talks about the power of his resurrection, and you said it's the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. Is it basically the Holy Spirit inside of us is the power of his resurrection? I mean, is that... Uh, that's part of it. I mean, you start with that because we all have the, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We all have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But it goes past that because it's specifically, it's patrological. It's the Father's power. It's the power that he, the Father, used when he raised Jesus from the dead. And that power works in us. That's above and beyond just being in fellowship and filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to more of that tonight too. Great question. appreciate that. All right, across the aisle, we'll get David in the back row there. Too, but okay. The first one's for Sherry, but she doesn't want to ask it. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> uh, what exactly was the thorn in Paul's side? I believe it was an angel. It's called an angelos of Satan. Okay. And uh, I believe that normally angels cannot possess a believer or angels cannot uh, even <laughs> invade a believer. But like when Job was struck with boils from his head to his feet, that was done by angelic agency. And so I think same thing with Paul. And it probably affected his face. Probably blinded him, probably affected his eyesight and his facial disfiguration because he was pretty gruesome to look at on some of the descriptions. So, And the purpose was to keep him humble? Or? To humble him, definitely to humble him. Because uh, the, the surpassing, it says in Second Corinthians 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation that he received to keep himself from humbling. I mean, think about it. You're, walking, you're the only man walking this earth that has been there and seen it and seen all those things. And it'd be very tempting to to tell those stories and talk about it and and uh, so this, this thorn in the flesh was, was deliberately sent there to humble him. That's what we're, we're told. My second question, it regards the age of accountability. So uh-huh. we know from Scripture, uh, based on King David's child when he passed away, that, you know, age of accountability, you automatically are saved, go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, how come in God's foreknowledge he would know if that child lived to be 100 years old if they would have come to know Christ or not on their own, Correct. Oh, God knows, yeah, if they were to live longer, whether they would accept or reject. or. or so whatnot. I guess I'm contrasting two things in my mind here. I know Pastor Theme used to teach that um, he also knows where you would have been spiritually, and so you're granted those rewards if you'd have lived to 80 or 100. Mm-hmm. So that's using foreknowledge. So why would he not use the foreknowledge to not grant you salvation if he knew you were not going to be a believer? Uh, that's one way to model it. Yeah, that's one way to envision it. So I don't know if it's incorrect to assume that he, through his grace, he knows where you would have lived, you know, where you would have been spiritually at 80 years old versus eight months old. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that, if you use that logic, then it's like, well, why, why wouldn't he use this foreknowledge to not grant you salvation then? Right. So I'm a little, I guess, confused on that now. <laughs> yeah, so... We, we come to deductive reasoning, and, and, and with deductive reasoning, you have a premise, you have a second premise, you put those together, and you come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is valid as long as each premise is true. Uh, but then your case gets weaker and weaker when you're taking one deduction, and then that becomes the premise for something else, and then you're, you're, you're getting further and further out on that limb, and you realize that the further you carry these things out, 
you actually have multiple premises behind all of it, and if any one of those break down, then the whole construct kind of kind of falls apart. So um, I, I think it's simpler in in terms of um, the age of accountability because he says, "Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute sin." And uh, there's there's other passages besides David's baby, the seven day old infant that dies. There's other passages, uh, for instance, in the virgin birth passage that talks about a virgin will conceive and bear a son in Isaiah chapter 7. It goes on to say, before the child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, to choose the good and reject the evil, before he reaches that age while he's still eating the curds and honey and whatever. So that's a passage that speaks of God's grace towards the young children before they reach their, their culpability for uh, obedience and disobedience. So there, there's a lot of passages that address that. And I don't know that it's functional to, because um, there's really no biblical answers. We can, we can speculate, well, what about the unevangelized? What about the pygmy? What about, you know, somebody that grew up in the jungle and never saw, never heard the gospel? You know, those that have never heard the gospel. And see, God, God's bigger than all of that too, you know. And, and that's where foreknowledge, if he sees positive volition, and this is somebody who would accept the, the, the gospel if only they weren't, you know, stuck in the jungle somewhere. Well, why are they stuck in the jungle? Is God not capable of, you know, he can send a fish to swallow somebody and take them where he wants them. So um, anyway, a lot of those are just arguments that, that skeptics make because they, they hate God to begin with, and so they throw out these what-ifs and whatever. But um, there's, there's answers for all of them, and, and God and his foreknowledge. God is very gracious. If he believes, you know, every miscarriage, every child, uh, you know, that dies young, there's such infant mortality around the world, too, that, uh, that there's a grace provision from God that, uh, that someone who would have accepted the gospel had they been, you know, born in Seattle, Washington in the late 60s. You know, God is, is able to, to reach anybody he wants to reach. That's, that's how I usually answer people on that basis. So I appreciate that. Thank you for those questions. All right. Thank you, Chris. Well, uh, if I didn't get to yours tonight, save it for next week and we'll, or send me an email. I didn't see that one Bill uh, said he sent, but we'll, uh, I'll do a better job checking on those. And um, let's go to Philippians chapter 3 then and pick up where we left off on Sunday. Because we're talking about things that Paul hopes to attain to, and he says he's not there yet. And uh, in part, uh, we're kind of cheating because we're looking ahead to verse 12 where he says, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. And yet, even without cheating, and even without looking ahead to verse 12, still, the verses where we are in 8 and 9 and 10 are still speaking of, of a future anticipation. And so, anyway, let's look at it again. Verse 8, Philippians 3, 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And that's forward-looking. That's future anticipation. That's something he's not, uh, he's not making a claim to have, to have presently gained yet. And if it's, if it's implicit in 8, 9, and 10, and 11, then it gets explicit in verse 12, when he says, just to be clear here, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. So all of the, the purpose clauses that we have, all of the expectations that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, that I may 
uh, know him, okay, uh, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So everywhere you see a that I may, that I may, that I may, this is, uh, these are uh, infinitives. These are infinitives of, of purpose. These are goals. These are objectives that, uh, that Paul is hoping to, uh, to attain to. And, and some of them are kind of tough to think about when we scratch our heads and think, well, Paul, don't you already have that? Right? And if we, if we're, if we're not careful, I mean, or if we're just reading too quickly and not thinking it through, um, I think the tendency is, is we just, we just immediately think about getting saved, right? We just think about phase one salvation. We think about, well, if I'm going to gain Christ, I guess that just means I'm going to get, I'm going to get saved. Well, wait a minute. Paul's already saved. This, this, there's nothing in this context where Paul is talking about, you know, um, when he says, I've suffered the loss of all things, uh, he's already saved when he's talking about all of this anyway, right? That I may count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, may be found in him, and, uh, and so forth. And maybe w- one of the biggest reasons why the confusion happens, because it talks about the righteousness uh, which comes from God on the basis of faith. And you see that there in verse 9, the righteousness that's not my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And folks look at that and say, well, there you go. This has to be talking about getting saved. No, no. Um, There's so many other ways that the righteousness of God comes. Yes, that initial salvation imputation is one. I grant you that. And we can get there in Romans 4 and Romans 5 and plenty of other passages of the Bible. But there is additional righteousness of God that is that is imputed to us, that is supplied through us, that is manifest in and through us to this fallen world. Um, it, uh, clearly, this is experiential, not positional, as we, as we break that down. This is phase two, not phase one, every step of the way. So don't, don't let the term righteousness through faith, don't, uh, don't let that trick you into thinking that somehow we're back in a phase one discussion. Okay, Are we clear on that? We're not talking about Paul getting saved. None of these things are about Paul getting saved. These are about a saved believer growing to maturity, pressing on to maturity, very similar to what we're dealing with in, in Hebrews, actually. And so uh, to, to press on to maturity and to be made perfect, to become perfected, as verse 12 deals with in, in, uh, in these verses here. So as we've been looking at it, um, and really the point is this, knowing Christ is a bigger concept than, not that, than simply becoming saved. We go past the positional and now we want to really understand this whole text is dealing with the experiential blessings that come as we know him more and more and more and more, better and better and better and better, all of the dimensions that uh, where we come to know the Lord. And so in this section... Um, this is uh, dealing with the experiential benefits of growing up. The, the powerful things that happen, the, the more we know the Lord. And so, um, yeah, this is where we are. All right, so we've covered gaining Christ. It's the same language of profiting, of winning, the same uh, profiting language that we've dealt with uh, previously. Uh, when we talk about the difference between a profit and a loss, this is the profit vocabulary again. And so of all the profiting, all the gaining, all the, all the winning, are you tired of winning yet? All the winning that we're going to do in Christ, okay, includes winning Christ, gaining Christ. 
and actually, uh, you know, I mean, we, we receive Christ at the moment of salvation. Every believer receives Christ. The, the split second that he believes and he receives eternal life, he has Christ. But has he gained Christ? Is, has he won Christ? Is he profited on that basis of Christ? See, and I think the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that immature believers don't understand what they've been given. The baby believer is clueless as to how powerful he is. The baby believer needs to learn how to fully express that which is in us for Christ's sake. And so some of these things, um, I don't know, maybe, um, maybe I'm just preaching to myself tonight but, and, and you're all way ahead of me, but I think a lot of believers don't pay attention to the fact that we have more than we understand and that we've been given so much up front that really it's the rest of our time here on earth just figuring out what happened in September of 1973, you know? What happened on that day when I believed in Jesus Christ and received eternal life? Because, man, the Father gave me everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I'm just now, 45 years later, learning what some of those things were that happened way back in the day, okay? And the more we learn about that, the more we grow in that, then, man, now we really start to become engaged in, in what we've been called to do. And uh, we're able to lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus, terms uh, such as we find here in other passages. So um, I'm going to pick up where we left off, but I just, if, I can, if I'm allowed one quick side trip, yes you may, I'm going to go to uh, Philemon and, and just throw a verse out here for us to consider in, um, aim for Hebrews and back up one book to Philemon. It's... Um, it's really what energizes uh, fellowship in Philemon verse 6. <clears throat> and, you know, we talk about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, and, and Paul is complimenting Philemon because of his faith and his love and this. But he then says in verse 6, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. That's working, accomplishing, that's the effects that the Father does. The fellowship of your faith may become effective through the epinosis, the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. You see that there? And that's what I'm talking about, that we get these things when we're saved. We just don't know it. We don't realize it. And, uh, and so then when we come to the full knowledge of all these good things, then we can have an effective fellowship as, as I encourage you and you encourage me and we encourage one another and, and believers are able to, to, uh, to uh, goad one another to love and good deeds on the basis of the fact we've been given everything we need to do it anyway. And so it becomes a, uh, a, an experiential realization of our positional reality. And that's the point we have on the screen now as I return back to Philippians 3. So there is a reality, and that reality is the same for all of us, but the realization is different. <laughs> because some of us have more realization than others, and some have no realization at all. They're oblivious to everything, and yet it still is a reality. Okay, The reality doesn't change. No matter how long it takes us to figure it out, the reality is still the reality. And it doesn't change. That's, uh, that's significant. So... Um, we talk about these things. All right, we talk about gaining Christ. We talk about having a realization of that positional reality. And what a, what a faith rest provision. What a blessing to just stop and say, hey, you know what? I'm in Christ. 
you know, and somebody's cutting you down and somebody's tearing you to shreds and, and you're just like, hey, who can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And I'm in Christ Jesus. So uh, there you go. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? You know, things present, things to come. What, what are we talking about? And so we get verses like that. We get passages like Romans 8. We get other uh, Ephesians 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is in Christ. We have it all. And so the whole, uh, the whole uh, victimization complex and the whole thing of, of envy and the whole thing of dissatisfaction that I don't have what I think I deserve or I don't have this or I don't have that or I'm complaining because somebody I think inferior to me has something that is, I think is superior to what I've got and I think I deserve it and he doesn't. And we get on this human thing where we're just upset all the time. And, and the, the, the truth is, all of it's garbage. Because everything belongs to you, you belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God. Let's just center on the provision that He's made and, and who we are in Christ. So if we can take all of, those rea- the, 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 all of that reality and internalize it, identify with it, think it through, make it an active part of, of what, how we consider, how we make decisions, how we serve, how we pray, then, uh, then the reality becomes a realization. And, uh, and then I think we're on track. So that's, essentially, that's, that was Sunday's message. That was 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 6. And then we talk about being found in Him. Being found, right? Being watched, being observed, being found, being discovered. You know, like, ah, there you are, okay? Um, the fact is, we're all under a microscope, and He designed it that way. That we're all being observed in time and in eternity. We're being observed. We are a cosmological display. And that's the true aspect of cosmos, right? It's an arrangement, but it's also a display. When you put on your cosmetics, why is that? You're putting on cosmetics because you're on display. People are looking at you. You want them to be pleased with what they're looking at, okay? That's cosmetics. You have an arrangement. And this present arrangement is such that the Father is displaying His grace, that we are testimonies to how gracious God is. And so being found in Him is the cosmological display of victory through grace, that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. So when believers look at me, I want them to see God's righteousness by grace through faith. When unbelievers look at me, I want them to see God's righteousness by grace through faith. When angels look at me, and we're talking both in time and in eternity. Because the, the display is now. And uh, that becomes important. And uh, if, if some folks I talk to, they've got this idea that, well, it only counts in eternity, so it doesn't matter now. Oh, it does matter now. It matters greatly now. Okay? As far as that goes. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because you are a cosmological display of victory through grace. And, and that's what you want to have portrayed. Manifested both in time and in eternity. And you know, they may slander you, they may say all kinds of evil things against you, and uh, that's going to glorify Christ too. <laughs> because it's not true. And uh, they're going to give an answer for that as well. So Matthew 10, uh, Acts 4.13, all of these passages were things that we, uh, we dealt with on 
Sunday. But being found in him, that's the thing. It's a passive tense. Uh, you're not uh, doing the finding. You're, you're the being found one. Okay? Other people are watching. Other people are looking. And what they find is you. So how do they find you? They find you with your, in, in righteousness of your deeds, garments in, in white, and, and, or do they find you wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? How, how do they find you in the, uh, in the description there? Okay? So make sure that you're found in him with God's righteousness, not, not your own righteousness. All right. And then that I may know him. That I may know him. Now we talked in verse 8 about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now it's repeated, but it's repeated with three specific areas. Knowing Christ with three specific aspects. What is it I want to know about Christ? And, and is it things about Christ or is it knowing Christ? I think that's a big difference too, right? But specifically, these are the three aspects. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and uh, the conformity, being conformed to his death in order that I may, if maybe perhaps possibly, attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. And uh, the puzzle that bothers a lot of people in verse 11, we'll, uh, we'll try to uh, unravel that for you here tonight. So knowing Christ with three specific aspects, the power of his resurrection, Starting with the power of his resurrection. And this is, uh, the question was asked, is this simply the Holy Spirit who indwells us, or is it more than the Holy Spirit? I believe it's more than the Holy Spirit. It starts with that, but it also specifically includes the Father's power. The very same power that the Father exercised when he raised Jesus from the dead. That power is available to us today. And, um, and so the, uh, the, uh, uh, Ralph used to draw interesting diagrams for this that I found useful, and maybe I'll share one of those with you here tonight as well, but um, the uh, because how do I how do I access this power? How do I flip the switch? Where's the you know, where's the breaker box to turn on the Father's power? You know, I, I got the the Holy Spirit's power if I'm in fellowship. If I am not grieving or quenching or resisting the Holy Spirit, I, I get the Spirit's power if I'm walking in the light and filled with the Holy Spirit. But where do where where's that breaker switch? How do I turn on the Father's power? I want to I really want to juice this up and. See what my what happens to my Christian walk at that point. Well, that's uh, comes about through prayer. Comes about through asking. Comes about through that engagement uh, in in your prayer life. So um, that's what we're talking about there. All right. So picking up here, Romans six. This will be redundant if you were here on uh, Sunday, uh, and it's edifying either way. Romans chapter six, verses four, five, and eleven. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. So the, the Christian walk in the church age is greater than anything an Old Testament saint could have dreamed of. Because they could learn the word of God, they could walk after wisdom, they could walk, uh, you know, David had a great walk, but he wasn't walking in the power of the resurrection. He wasn't walking in the newness of life with a risen Savior. He was walking as a believer, anticipating a coming Christ would come someday. And uh, that's a difference. Verse 5, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. This is positional truth, reality for the church age. You know, the, the greatest, I think David was the, the greatest believer of the Old Testament. He was a man after God's own heart. He was clearly, he was a type of Christ, the best of all of them. Still a sinner. 
And yet, even with his great walk, or pick another hero, Noah, Daniel, Job, they, I mean, they were all great heroes of the Old Testament. None of them were united with Jesus Christ by uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To be positionally united with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, that's not an Old Testament positional truth reality. That's our positional truth reality. And so we need to have a realization of this reality and, uh, and live it out. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's not talking about getting resurrected someday. That's talking about this present walk today in the newness of life. Walking victoriously. Walking without sin. And uh, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's not, you know, hoping to get resurrected someday. That's today. Considering yourself today dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the resurrection power. The power of His resurrection is the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 12. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why is that? Because we have the power of his resurrection. We have the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. So whatever hits us, we just recognize, hey, it's momentary light affliction. It's not worthy to be compared. We keep our eyes focused where they need to be. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Okay? And we're going to talk about this too because this is the third item. This is conformable unto his death. See? But always caring about the body of the dying. What does that mean? We walk around with corpses over our shoulder. We, we, you know, we, we're, what does that mean? Okay? I think it means what it says right here. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And so by carrying around the, 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 the dying of Jesus, the, the equivalent there is our sin nature. That, uh, that that's old man's been crucified. And so when I'm, when I'm walking around with a crucified sin nature, um, I'm testifying to men and angels and God and myself and everybody that I'm walking in that newness of life. This is the power of the resurrection. So then death works in us, but life in you. In verse 12. Ephesians 1 is probably the clearest of all of these passages. Ephesians 1, because again it describes the positional reality that we want to make an experiential realization. That we are raised up, we are seated. And this does come about through prayer. That's why Ralph diagrammed this with prayer as the uh, breaker switch for activating it. Um, so uh, he says I'm praying for you guys in fact I don't even cease Ephesians 1.16 I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so we're going to have a pedagogical perspective here because of this I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, 
and what is presently now the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is the Father's power. This is the grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. According to, uh, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so if you need, uh, you probably need to color your Bibles like Mike Snyder here and, and color all your he's and your hymns and make sure you're straight on the Father versus the Son here. But he, the Father, brought about in Christ when he, the Father, raised him, Christ, from the dead and seated him, Christ, at his, the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power that's available for us today. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that's not just directed towards Christ, it's directed towards us as well. Put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so there it is. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that's available for us today. But Paul says he's praying that we will have our eyes open to understand that. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you can know all this. All right. So we have grace empowerment to walk in the newness of life. We also have grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. This is the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings is the grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. Now some people, when they think about the sufferings of Christ, the only thing they think of is the passion of the Christ. The only thing they think of is that Friday in 33 AD when he went to the cross and, and purchased our redemption. All right? And that's, you know, it's a good thing to think about. It's, it's, uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to think about, but it's not everything with respect to the sufferings of Christ. Uh, they were the pinnacle of his first advent incarnation sufferings. However, the sufferings of Christ continue. The sufferings of Christ continue in the church age because the body of Christ is suffering presently in the church age. And as the body of Christ suffers presently in the church age, the sufferings of Christ are being completed. They're being filled up. And we're all to be partakers in that. When one member suffers, every member suffers. And so the sufferings of Christ continue in the present age. And this, uh, this is the basis upon which we have fellowship. It's, uh, it's uh, not sitting around in a dining room and, and, and stuffing burgers and hot dogs in our mouth. Um, we, we call that fellowship, right? We call that uh, a potluck or something. But fel- the fellowship of his sufferings doesn't need hot dogs or, or cheeseburgers, right? The fellowship of his sufferings is whereby we are united with our brothers and our sisters and we are going through what they're going through and we love them and we bear it and we pray uh, with them through these things and uh, and then we open ourselves up to let them share our burdens while while we're at it see and it becomes reciprocal it becomes mutual reciprocal and uh, and god is glorified in in just a, a real multiplied way so the fellowship of his sufferings how about romans 8 in this connection Romans 8, verses 17 and 18. So, um, we're all children, and uh, 
All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery, as verse 15, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is our blessing in the church age. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so we get, we get this testimony in a way that Old Testament saints never got. We've got that permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit that speaks to our human spirit, our living human spirit, and we get this. We are children of God, and if children, heirs also. That's fun. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Okay? And how many believers want to just finish the verse there? Put a period there. Fellow heirs with Christ. Put a period there in the verse. Because the rest of the verse talks about suffering. And well, wait a minute. You know, I want to be a fellow heir. Yeah, I want the crown. I want the glory. I want the kingdom. Well, wait a minute. Okay. What is it that's going to prepare you for that crown? What's going to prepare you for that kingdom? What is it that's going to suit you? See, don't think they're shortcuts. Don't buy it for a minute when Satan promises you that you can have the kingdom without the, without the cross, that you can have the glory without the suffering. All right, that's a lie. And Satan tried it with Jesus, and Jesus was having none of it. Satan said, just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms and all their glory. And Jesus said, no, worship God and God only, right? So the rest of this verse says, if indeed, and if in fact we do, we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. It's promised, it's guaranteed, it's eternal, but there's a process to get us there. And the process to get us there is the suffering. And if indeed we do, this is a first class, it's assumed to be true and it's very true because of course we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So quit blowing it out of proportion. Quit making mountains out of molehills, right? And just rejoice in the suffering and the proportion that he lets you suffer. Uh, to that proportion rejoice that you're counted worthy of the glorification of Jesus Christ. This is the fellowship of his sufferings. And it's the grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. This is how 2 Corinthians begins in chapter 1. He is the Father of mercy and God of all comfort. Which would be pretty useless titles if we didn't need such things constantly, right? I mean, who needs a Father of mercies and God of all comfort if we are living in the, uh, the uh, prosperity theology, millennial, delusional Christianity that a lot of folks think they're living in, you know? I mean, seriously, if that's, if that's the Christian walk, then who needs the Father of mercies and God of all comfort? Okay, but I, th- I think we know better. Uh, we don't live in that Pollyanna pretend millennium world. We live in the church age, which is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And so we see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as... The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. The sufferings of Christ. See, the passion of the Christ is not limited to Good Friday. It is, it is throughout the church age. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Do you feel cheated? Do you feel like you've got maybe a suffering deficiency? That uh, you're not suffering enough? Okay? Because it says abundance. So if you think you're, you're, You've been overlooked or neglected. Let me know. Come talk to me after class. We'll 
<laughs> we'll add some to you. How about that? And there's a reason for it. There are an abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. See, His grace is sufficient. When we're weak, then we're strong. You know, Paul asked three times for that thorn in the flesh to be revealed, uh, to be removed. And God said, are you kidding me? I'm giving you the greatest affliction that a church-age believer has ever had up to this point so that I can give you the greatest comfort that any church-age believer has ever had up to this point. If we're uh, afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which is affected effective, that's working, achieving, in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And so really this is why we're a body. This is why we're called to love one another in this thing. It's not, you know, the Christian way of life is not a thing whereby you, uh, you know, you look around and you think you dodged a bullet because it, it hit your buddy instead of you. No. You know, when your sister is struggling or when, you know, something else is happening and, you know, what's our attitude supposed to be? It's not going to be a, you know, man, glad that didn't happen in me. You know, it is happening to you, pal. Guess what? Because when one member suffers, we all suffer. And let's have this as the attitude. So um, that's how the Father designed it. So um, the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, and guess what? That's the word for fellowship. As you are sharers in our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. And so the, the prayers get multiplied, the glory gets multiplied. It's not just one person who gives God the glory for an answer to prayer. It's 10 people, 20 people, 100 people, a whole church. How many people are coming to prayer meetings in order to share in these things? And so we get to multiply the... Uh, the praise. And uh, that's what, what you see when you get down to verse 11 of this context. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. Isn't it disappointing when somebody says, sorry, I can't do anything more for you, but all I can do is pray. Oh, is that all you can do? All you can do is interact with the sovereign power of the universe that, uh, <laughs> that can do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think. That's all you can do is pray. Well, when you pray, you're joining and you're helping and you're contributing so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. Does the Father want a soloist singing that Thanksgiving song or does He want a choir, a chorus? We're all singing in uh, the glorious harmony so that uh, many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. See, these multiplied prayers, they magnify God's grace. The favor is bestowed through the prayers of many. This is what the fellowship of his sufferings is all about. Grace empathy to suffer with and comfort one another. So we have a grace empowerment and we have a grace empathy. Colossians And um, Paul's writing to the Colossians, a group he's never met. He's never been to Colossae. He knows uh, some of their leaders, Epaphras and some folks there, but he's never been to Colossae. And so he's praying for them and, and he wants them to uh, continue on. Um, so I guess, let's see here, verse 
21 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he's encouraging him to stay the course, not to peel out, not to flake off. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The ongoing present sufferings. And in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Notice that there? Good Friday was not the end of Christ's afflictions. See, Satan still hates Christ with every fiber of his being. He can't get to Christ now, seated at the right hand of the Father, so where does he go? Us. He attacks us. How did he get to Adam? Attacking the bride. How does he get to Christ? He's attacking the bride. Anyway. So, uh, and Paul says, man, I rejoice in this, in my sufferings for your sake. And uh, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Isn't that something? Man, can't wait to get to that chapter. There's a lot that's there. And then finally, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. I think the believers that aren't willing to suffer, aren't willing to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, they're effectively disarmed, right? In the angelic conflict, doesn't this say arm yourself? Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Anyway, arm yourselves with the same purpose. So we have the power of his resurrection and we have the fellowship of his sufferings. And uh, man, that's great. But it doesn't stop there. Okay, We have a grace empowerment. We have a grace empathy. What else do we have? Being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death is the grace emulation to sacrificially love and stay faithful until death. We imitate Christ, or we emulate Christ. I wanted to keep it an E, because of the empowerment and the empathy. So, imitation didn't do it. That was an I. But we are to be imitators of Christ, right, as beloved children? Being conformed to His death is the grace emulation to sacrificially love and stay faithful unto death. So we're caring about, always caring about the dying of Jesus. We ourselves are always ready. We ourselves are ready to lay down our lives for the sheep. We ourselves are sacrificial in our service. If you're not, uh, if you're not walking in sacrificial love, you're not conformed to his death. Because his death was all about love, right? I mean, that's the, the pinnacle of love. We love because he first loved us. We only understand love because Jesus died on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus so loved the church that he gave himself for us. These are the things that we recognize. The cross is, is, is love. It's like um, the, the, there never was a pulpit like the cross. 
You ever heard that song? <laughs> there never was a pulpit like the cross. And uh, man, that, that song says a lot. Or uh, I never heard a real love song until I heard about Jesus who died for me. That's another good one. Okay. Anyway, so many of these truths come out and impact hymn writers and different Christians at different times. Um, but sacrificial love. All right, so John 15 talks about this, Ephesians 5, 1 John 4, Revelation 2, be faithful unto death. And I've got to preach all of this in three minutes and ten seconds. So we'll see what happens. Um, we're going to run out of time. But you know, what else could it be to be conformed to his death? To be, and, and the verb, I didn't put it on here, but the verb for conformity is like who Jesus existed in the form of God and then took the form of a bondservant. We are sum morphizoed. We are, we are morphed together with Jesus, conformed, conformed to his death. That is morphed together with his death. It's a grace emulation to sacrificially love. And so in John 15, we're to bear fruit. We're to abide in Christ. If we're not abiding in Christ, we can't bear any kind of fruit. And then those are in the early verses. And then he gets to this issue on love. Just as my Father has loved me and I also have loved you, abide in my love. It's not touchy-feely emotionalism. It is sacrificial service. It is laying down your life for the sake of a brother or a sister or an enemy. Okay? Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And look what it cost Him. He went to the cross, abiding in the Father's love, but keeping the Father's commandments. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Anyway, it goes on. I mean, all the way down to verse 21. I mean, the bulk of this chapter is centering on this. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, just as. Well, how was that? Sacrificial, unconditional, laying down his life. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You know, and that's, you think our job gets easy, right? Because we're friends, we're, we're in Christ, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. When he did it, we were enemies. You know, he loved when we weren't lovable. We were, you know, we were enemies. If while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so now here we are, called to love one another. We're called to love our brethren for whom Christ died. You know, and that's, that gets convicting. So no longer do I call you slaves. A slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Say, Jesus isn't just barking orders and expecting us to obey like a mindless slave. That's not the church age. The church age is we are adult sons. We are adult daughters. We, he's, he's not only telling us what to do, but he's giving us, we have the purpose, we have the reasons, we have the like-mindedness, we're fully on board. He's, he's giving us all the answers we want and need. I find that significant. Anyway, it just keeps going and going and going. Verse 17, love one another. Verse 18, if the world hates you, well, not a shock. Yeah, it's hated me before it's hated you. You know, I chose you out of this world. No wonder it hates you. A slave is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That's fine. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. 
Well, if we want to be conformed to his death, we've got to live this chapter. We've got to be loving one another and willing to lay down our life. Okay? There's also Ephesians 5 and 1 John 4 and Revelation 2, but I'm out of time. So we'll pick up there on Sunday and then we'll talk about the maybe resurrection that Paul might attain to someday. If perhaps maybe I might get to get resurrected from the dead. And that's, uh, that's verse 11. Father, I do thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for brothers and sisters that study to show themselves approved, that, uh, Father, dig into the deep things, that sink their teeth into the meat, that, Father, uh, go beyond uh, the surface and uh, search for the truth, Father. And in that uh, I thank you that you're training us to think positionally, to think experientially, and to think ultimately, Father, in the phase three ultimate sanctification that we have as well. Father, thank you for equipping us to think in human terms and angelic terms, to think in uh, the physical dimension and the spiritual dimension. Father, just uh, so much of what you're equipping us, Father, is uh, it's, uh, it's not milk, it's not basics, it's, it's some pretty deep stuff, Father, but your, your Spirit takes us through all things, even the deep things of God. So I thank you for every blessing and every opportunity, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.